Australians have a passionate love affair with cars. We use them to travel this vast and wide country, to visit friends and family and carry our tools. Not to mention the occasional burnout. But cars and their byproducts have a detrimental effect on the environment, health and well-being. And reducing our emissions from cars is just one of the puzzle pieces in reaching net zero by 2050. So what policies can government put in place to make sure Australians can continue to enjoy cars while reducing the negative social and environmental effects? Here to discuss their new report, the Grattan Car Plan, Practical Policies for Cleaner Transport and Better Cities are Ingrid Burford, Senior Associate, and Lachlan Fox, Graduate Associate. So Ingrid, would you consider yourself a rev head? Am I allowed to say that I love cars and in fact grew up with old cars and have a 69 Mini that I love to bits and tinker with? I would say I love cars, but I'm not a rev head. Does that count? Well, I think that completely makes you legitimate, Ingrid. I mean, if you have a car and you do mechanical work on it, I mean, you're pretty legit there. I mean, I don't even do that much mechanics on my wonderful V6 four-wheel drive, who will get a mention later in the podcast. What about you, Lockie? Are you a rev head? I I think as a kid, I I used to really love cars and I can appreciate the good technology, but when I'm driving around in my 10 or 15 year old Mazda 2, uh, I, I don't think I can really claim any any rev head status or I'd get frowned upon pretty quickly. By me. Who knew the transport team were such rev heads or car devotees? So one of the things I'd like you to do first is to take us through some of the key recommendations in this report, because there's a lot in this report. It's a really juicy report. So Lockie, I'll turn to you first for that. Yeah, so some of the key recommendations in the report focus on a few of the downsides of driving, really, and how to minimise them. And so one of the the first recommendations is for the federal government to introduce a carbon emission ceiling, which is often known as an emission standard, on the sale of new light vehicles, and to also ensure that Australians get access to better quality petrol and fuels. We also have recommendations Um, which are geared at improving outcomes for households and consumers as we transition to a lower carbon fleet. And then more broadly as well, outside of just emissions and pollutants, we also discuss plenty of ideas around how to help us come out of COVID without increasing our dependence on cars, as the fear of contagion and catching public transport is probably going to push us into more and more driving with all the downsides that come with that. Yeah, that's a big thing for um, the future, which is, you know, do we even want to go on public transport um, given the fears? And and obviously, you know, there is some concern around catching COVID in those kind of enclosed spaces. So I'll be really interested to hear your thoughts on that. So Ingrid, I mean, like some of these ideas have been around for a long time. What makes this different? What are you doing in this report that is new. Yeah, you're right, Kat. Plenty of these ideas have been around for a while, but what we've done differently is put different policy options through a really rigorous set of policy filters. What that means is that we've thought really hard about the effectiveness of competing policies and the fairness implications of different policies, so impacts on lower income people. We've also thought really hard about the affordability of different policy options uh, when we've compared them and their merits. We've paid particular attention as well to the impact of different policies on individuals' choices. So thinking hard about what you know different policies might mean for different groups of consumers, different types of drivers, different types of households. We're doing that not just through um, a fo- you know a lens that focuses on carbon, 
but also thinking about how we need to keep one eye on other important social goals. So things like health and, you know, what cars mean for our cities and how we live day to day. So we've weighed up all of the sort of the competing policy options from these different angles. And we believe we've come up with a policy package um, that's right for this moment. So Lockie, I want to dig into some of the things you mentioned that you cover in the report. And I think the first one thing we need to cover off is what do you mean by a carbon emission ceiling? Because I'm not sure I completely understand that myself. Yeah. So an emission ceiling or an emission standard, as it's often been known, is one of the key recommendations. And it essentially sets a target for manufacturers so that for their new vehicle sales, they have to reduce the carbon intensity of those vehicles. So for example, each year, every manufacturer will get a slightly different target of carbon emissions depending on the type of vehicles they sell. At the moment, new vehicles in Australia emit about 180 grams per kilometre that they travel of carbon dioxide. And basically what a ceiling does is say for a manufacturer, for example, Toyota, in 2024, your average vehicle that you sell in a given year might have to be 140 grams per kilometre. And so this means that manufacturers can shift the mix of cars they sell. They can try and sell more hybrids. They can try and sell more electric cars. And they have lots of strategies that they can use to get there. And it just means that it decreases the carbon intensity of the new vehicles they sell. And over time, the aim is that a carbon ceiling or an emission ceiling um, decreases. And so we propose that the ceiling should decrease to zero by 2035, which would help get us on the way to net zero by 2050. And so in the report, we look at a, three different scenarios of different ceilings that we could, we could impose. And we, we've estimated that a ceiling could save us 20 to 30 megatons, so 20 to 30 million tons of carbon by 2030. And that, that's already about 40 to 50% of the reductions that we need for our Paris commitments of a 26% reduction from 2005 levels um, without using carryover credits or any of the past overperformance that could be used. And the other benefit is it saves consumers money because lower emissions vehicles also use less petrol. Um, they're cheap to run. And, and we estimate that over the first five years of purchasing a new vehicle under an emission ceiling, uh, the average driver would save about $900 to $1,000 and they'd sell, save well over $2,000 over the entire lifetime of the vehicle. And I, I guess one of the key features and key benefits of this policy is that it really does harness manufacturers' knowledge about the technology they can use in cars and their consumers as well and what the consumers might want so they're not pushing people into cars that they don't want to buy in the first place. Now, Lockie, we'll get a little bit into kind of what's the catch here because this sounds like a fantastic idea. But first I kind of want to look at what the major parties have been saying because, you know, you've compared these different policy options here and you've recommended a carbon emission ceiling. But what about subsidies that are banded about quite a bit? Uh, what about you, Ingrid? So you're right, Kat. We did um, compare lots of different policy options and it's also true that subsidies are extremely popular with different states and, and territories and with you know, federal Labor's um, proposed electric vehicle discount. New South Wales and Victoria, for example, have introduced $3,000 subsidies for the purchase of new electric vehicles. And these are understandably policies that are popular with plenty of constituents as well. But we conclude that actually subsidies are not the best option when it comes to reducing uh, emissions from light vehicles in Australia. And that's actually for a number of reasons. The first, you know, links back to one of the points Lockie made about a carbon emission ceiling. With a carbon emission ceiling we, know, ceiling, we know exactly the kinds of reductions that we're going to get through time 
across the entire fleet of vehicles in Australia. And we just don't get that guarantee with subsidies. It's entirely possible, for example, under a subsidy scheme to see people take up that subsidy and buy more electric vehicles. That doesn't um, give us any guarantees at all about what we might be getting from other non-electric, non-zero emission sales in the fleet. So it's possible we'd be losing the gains from buying additional electric vehicles to the sale of more uh, emissions-heavy, carbon-heavy vehicles elsewhere. So that's really problematic from the perspective that we might be paying out large amounts of money but not actually getting what we're really after, which are those um, crucial carbon reductions. The other thing is that, you know, because it's not a fleet-wide policy, you don't create any incentives to embrace the available technology that helps us bring down carbon emissions in petrol and diesel vehicles because we know there'll be plenty of these on the road for many years to come manufacturers will continue to sell them. And a carbon ceiling does create that incentive. A subsidy for electric vehicles does not at all. And it doesn't provide an incentive for manufacturers to bring down prices in the longer run. It's a bit of a sugar hit, really, I'd say. You know, it doesn't get manufacturers on board with a clear target, with a clear incentive to sell more electric vehicles to a broader range of people. And it doesn't harness the knowledge that they have. Lockie was talking about the way that an emission ceiling does that. A subsidy doesn't create any push in that direction at all. And we can really easily see that actually if we compare the offering of electric vehicles in Australia compared to countries with a carbon ceiling. So, you know, here last year there were only 30 models available for Australian drivers and consumers. Only 14 of those were under $65,000. But in the UK, there were over 130 different models of electric vehicles to choose from. And that's the kind of choice we'd like, you know, to see available for Australian drivers as well. You know, we have real concerns about the fact that subsidies don't create those incentives um, for manufacturers to think um, hard about emissions, but also hard about consumers' budgets and preferences. The other thing about subsidies is that they are funded from broad-based taxation, um, but they benefit a small group of people. And evidence from overseas indicates that typically the households that can take up electric vehicle subsidies are wealthier households. So we also have concerns about subsidies from an equity perspective. I think he laid out pretty clearly there. And I mean, you know, the onus really should be on the industry here to create that competition as well for more cars um, available on the market. And I mean, therefore driving down the prices. And I think we'll probably get to that in a little bit. Lockie, I want to ask you that big question. I mean, this is really selling it for me. I like the idea of this ceiling. Why haven't we done this before and why should we do it now? The question around why we haven't done this before is something I've been asking myself for a little while. And an emission ceiling or standard really is nothing new. Um, I mean, in sort of 80% of global light vehicle sales around the world, an emission ceiling covers that sale. So, so we are the odd one out. Australia is lagging very far behind when it comes to getting these basics right. And, and the fact is we've debated this policy a, a lot of times before in the past, and it's just unfortunately always fallen off the agenda, be it from politics or other factors or initially some concerns around fuel quality and other things. But now really is the time to be doing it. And there's a couple reasons for that. And so the first is there's just a much greater impetus for us to act on emissions at the moment. All the states have net zero commitments by for 2050 and the federal government of sorts, we'll see how the next few weeks play out, does as well. Um, and we just risk being left really far behind and don't have very many strong levers to achieve that 2050 goal aside from an emission standard. I guess one other reason that emission standard hasn't been acted on before is there's often been some very vocal critics 
about Australia's fuel quality and how the fuel quality could interact with an emission standard. So Australia has pretty poor quality petrol, um, and this means that some engine technologies can't be brought to Australia that are used in Europe um, because our fuel quality is quite average. In the past, this has been used as an excuse for emission standards. And while there may be some truth in it, it definitely doesn't prevent an emission standard or an emission ceiling from being put in place. And that's because manufacturers have a lot of different ways that they can reduce their carbon emissions from vehicles. And using new engine technologies that require you know, high quality fuels is one avenue they could pursue overseas and they may not be able to do here, but it's by no means the only avenue. Hybrid vehicles don't necessarily need higher quality fuel. Electric vehicles don't use fuel at all. And there's now with newer technology, just so many ways that manufacturers could be reducing their emissions if there was more of an incentive for them to do so. And on top of that, our fuel quality is set to improve anyway. So by mid-2024, the government has committed um, with some funding to fuel refineries to improving the fuel quality. And so there's really just no excuses left to put this in, um, particularly with such a sort of strong movement towards um, net zero by 2050 coming into force behind a lot of the governments as well. Now, Lockie, that's really interesting you mentioned the fuel quality because I'm often left at the petrol pump wondering if those more expensive fuels are actually any good or worth paying for rather than just buying the cheapest I possibly can to go in my car. One of the biggest questions for me is that a standard electric vehicle is upwards of $50,000 right now. And I did look it up because I was very curious about, one, whether I could get my electric four-wheel drive or ute. And two, how much they actually cost? Like, could I afford one right now? What does an emission ceiling mean for low-income earners here or people who just don't want to spend a lot of money on a car, which is probably most of us? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I think people have quite a genuine concern that if we put in an emission ceiling or some other policy around electric vehicles, they're going to be forced into an electric vehicle next year or tomorrow, and they're going to need to fork out 20000 extra dollars than they would otherwise. And I mean, this really got riffed on in the last federal election campaign when there were lots of claims about an emission ceiling pushing up car prices by $5,000 or inordinate amounts, which quite simply probably is just very, very unlikely. But fortunately, a carbon ceiling really shouldn't affect people on lower incomes. And for most Australians, there really isn't anything to worry about. And so one, one reason this is probably the case and is important to remember is that an emissions ceiling only does apply to new vehicle sales. So the secondhand market, which a lot of people buy for, not just those on lower incomes, is really unlikely to be affected very much, particularly in the short term, if at all. And so this means that all those people looking to purchase a secondhand car will probably be almost totally unaffected by a ceiling, particularly in the medium and the short term. And then over the longer term, as we get some of those more efficient vehicles flowing through into the secondhand market, we're probably actually going to see a lot of benefit for people on lower incomes. Because an emission ceiling doesn't necessarily say you have to buy an EV or a hybrid, it just says a manufacturer needs to lower their average, they can do it in the most cost-effective way possible. And for some people, they will be willing to buy an EV and that will push the average down. For others, they may want a hybrid or for others, again, they may want a cheaper base vehicle that is similar to today's vehicle in the short term. But when we get you know, 15 years down the track and a lot of these vehicles are in the secondhand market, we'll really see a lot of the benefit of the lower running costs of these vehicles. And this means that people on lower incomes might be saving a few hundred dollars a year from spending less money on fuel because the vehicles in the secondhand market are just more efficient. And it might be a petrol vehicle, but it might be a petrol vehicle 
that uses, you know, five litres of fuel per 100 kilometres instead of eight litres of fuel per 100 kilometres. And that is actually quite meaningful for a household budget when it comes to transport. I would really like my four-wheel drive to run off five litres of fuel per 100 kilometres. I'd be pretty chuffed if I could get a vehicle like that with that kind of fuel economy. So, I mean, that's a big selling point for me there. Ingrid, I mean, it's going to be a long time before there's second-hand kind of more affordable EVs on the market. Yeah, that's true, Kat. So as Lockie was saying, there will be second-hand vehicles that flow through from into the Australian second-hand market from, you know, Australian buyers. But we'd like to really reinforce and shore up that more affordable second-hand market um, as one of the policy measures that complements the ceiling. So one of the recommendations we make is that the federal government changes um, the current rules that are in place that actually restrict the imports that um, Australian consumers can bring into their households. So at the moment, it's not possible for someone to directly import a new or a second-hand vehicle if that vehicle is also sold through official distribution channels. And what that does is it chokes off access to a broader range of vehicles, including lower and zero emission vehicles at lower price points. Changes to those import rules would give us all much better access to new and second-hand petrol and diesel vehicles that have lower emissions and, of course, zero-emission vehicles as well, including electric vehicles. Uh, This is a really important policy measure to bring in because it really um, ensures that we've got one eye on the equity implications of reducing our carbon emissions. And, you know, we all appreciate that it's really important to balance our environmental goals with our, our social goals. And this is an an important policy recommendation for helping us achieve that. So every time we do do a podcast on cars, and I've mentioned my beloved four-wheel drive already several times, we do have to ask that question, are you trying to curb my fun? Because I like to go caravanning with my family and I'm wondering if my days as an outback adventurer are numbered because I'm going to have to get an EV. And I can't necessarily go out into the bush where there's no power cords. It's a great question. <laughs> and it's it's also an issue, I'd say, that's close to home for me as well. I'd, you know, be quite disappointed if all of a sudden I couldn't drive into the middle of nowhere and go camping. But I, I think it's just not a problem we really have to worry about, particularly in the short term. I mean, mo- most households in Australia have two cars. So even if they bought an EV now, they'd still have one petrol car left over in the near term to go on longer trips. And the thing about an emission ceiling is that while it does change the balance of options available to Australian drivers, there's still going to be a larger range of vehicles like available to everyone. And so some of these will be lower and zero emissions vehicles, but there, and there will still be a smaller proportion of high emitting vehicles on offer. Drivers that need a more specialist or niche vehicles up until 2035 will probably be able to buy them relatively easily because more people who want to will switch to electric vehicles and bring the average down. And so this leaves space for people that want a higher emitting vehicle um, and are willing to pay for one to do so. Oh, I I was just going to say, Lockie, as well, you know, price parity is also just around the corner. So it's also true that in the meantime, you know, there's huge uh, technological and manufacturing innovations that mean that we're we're looking looking at getting um, electric SUVs and utes um, at price parity and on the road sort of between the mid to the late 2020s. So that will actually become a real option for people as well in the meantime. That's pretty exciting, especially for the um, four-wheel drive to pick up the kids from school crowd. Um, They might be very interested in, you know, electric SUV. 
for a lot of those really longer trips where an electric vehicle at the moment just might not suffice, I think it's important to remember that we're, we're talking about new vehicle sales being zero in 2035. Most of the vehicles on the road today are well over five or 10 years old. Most of us drive cars older than that. So even into the 2040s, a lot of people will still be driving petrol cars under this scheme. And we, we think about that it's 20 years into the future. 20 years ago, Tesla hadn't even been founded, let alone produced a car. And I, I think it's quite important to realize how quickly the technology is changing. And there's all the chance in the world that in 20 years time in the 2040s, you'll be able to buy a relatively affordable electric or hydrogen vehicle that can tow your caravan for hundreds of kilometers. And it probably won't break the bank either. So I think it's, yeah, it's important to recognize that things are changing quickly and what's available today definitely isn't what's going to be available in 20 years time. So Ingrid, I mean, the emission ceiling sounds great, but I mean, there's still a number of problems kind of remaining here. Does the emission ceiling solve those or are there things like the hangover from the pandemic that we really need to address in other ways? Well, an emission ceiling is incredibly effective at dealing with our carbon emissions. Um, you're right in that it doesn't fix the broader range of social effects that we all experience when we, when we drive cars, because most of us do drive cars. They cause congestion on our roads, they cause accidents, uh, and they take up a lot of public space as well as we drive and, and when we drive more often. That also creates real expectations and pressures to keep investing in roads and freeways, which are extremely expensive projects to undertake. You know, tackling the carbon that comes um, at the back end of our cars doesn't fix everything. Um, and in fact, there's a, a sneaky little potential downside as well to electric vehicles in that, you know, they are cheaper to drive. And that potentially means that people will drive more often, which would even potentially exacerbate um, some of the social costs that we that we get from driving. The price, you know, price-based reasons that people might be driving a little bit more. Um, and there's also, as you've mentioned, I suppose, the whiplash effect from COVID, which is to say that people will be hesitant about jumping on board a tram or a train. And the data shows that, in fact, those effects can really linger even when lockdowns end and push people into cars. And so we would expect to potentially see driving rates up. Um, as we come out of COVID, which is problematic. So we need other policies to, um, to address these, you know, these other side effects from the driving that we do. In particular, congestion is really expensive, not everywhere in Australia, of course. This is a location-specific problem, um, you know, particularly in our capital cities, Sydney and Melbourne, standing out there. And we've long advocated congestion charging as a mechanism for um, reducing that problem on our roads. We also support distance-based charges for electric vehicles, which we realise is um, a controversial position, but the kinds of costs being pro uh, proposed are low, about $300 a year in Victoria, for example. And that is an important um, mechanism for, you know, first of all, keeping front of mind that there are social costs to driving and just to make sure that it's not too easy to jump behind the wheel every single time we want to go somewhere. We want to encourage you know, our policymakers to think about making sure there's space on our roads for other forms of transport as well, because they'll also be very COVID friendly afterwards. We don't want people jumping off trams and into cars, but it would be great if they do jump onto bikes. And there's a fantastic range of new e-bikes and e-scooters, all sorts of new mobility devices that have come online and are really good fun and exciting. Um, so we'd like to see policies that make those really viable, safe and attractive options for people. And on public transport, it would be great if our governments could really move to embrace the technology that's available to make that safer for people. So 
For example, New South Wales has apps that give you know public transport users an indication of how busy um, different services are at different times. That really helps people manage you know their exposure. And we can get upstream of this problem as well. So rapid antigen testing has just been approved in Australia and it is a real public good. So if people can quickly and easily administer a, you know, an, um, a rapid antigen test in the morning before they head out the door to jump on the train or the tram, that does us all a favour. So we actually support the idea of um, public subsidies for rapid antigen testing for public transport users. Well, thank you so much, Ingrid and Lockie for humouring my enthusiasm for cars and my four-wheel drive and also enlightening us on the near future of electric vehicles. It's closer than you think and it's exciting to see that these changes are probably going to take place in my lifetime. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please follow us on your favourite podcasting app and if you'd like to keep the conversation going, talk to us on Twitter at Grattan Inst and social media at Grattan Institute. If you're getting out of lockdown like we are, Take care and enjoy yourself in the safest of ways. Thanks for listening.